Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Warriors for the Working Day by Peter Elstob Book One, First Light As soon as the tank stopped, Sergeant Donovan pulled the earphones off his head and rubbed his ears. The crackling of the wireless had given him a headache, and the pressure of the headset had made his ears ache too. He hung the headset from the open hatch, turning the earpieces towards him so that he could hear if his code letters were called. At the moment there was a lot of waffling going on between the colonel and his squadron leaders, and the regiment had come to a standstill with the tanks spread over the sandy common. Donovan settled himself comfortably on the small saddle-like seat and propped his feet up on the circle of armour-piercing shells running round the inside of the turret. He lit a cigarette and listened for a few moments to the confusion on the wireless. He decided there was just time for tea. Better get a brew on, Taffy, he said to his driver. He watched, as always with amusement and admiration, the swift, efficient way the four members of his crew worked together to make tea inside the tank. The petrol stove was lit, and the big mess tin filled with water, the tinned milk and the tea and sugar mixture were got out from the box that was supposed to hold spare wireless valves. The battered tin mugs were swilled out and swiped round with cleaning rag. Then the gunner spun the wheel to depress the gun fully, thus raising the breech inside the turret to give them as much room as possible. Sergeant Donovan absently watched the heavy gun barrel go down until it was lying almost on top of the co-driver's escape hatch. He remembered suddenly quite clearly the time his tank was hit at Alam Halfa. He, the gunner and the wireless operator had got out of the turret all right and had waited for the driver and co-driver. The seconds had dragged by, then he had seen the hole right in front of the driver's place and at the same moment noticed that the gun was lying across the co-driver's hatch, stopping it from coming up more than three or four inches. The co-driver's arm had come out trying to push the gun away just before the ammunition exploded. He shut his eyes tightly. Traverse right, he snapped, almost before he realised it. Hogg, the gunner, was busy spreading cheese on biscuits, but his reaction was automatic, and he spun the wheel which raised the gun and began to revolve it to the right. Steady, on, Donovan said when it was pointing straight ahead, and the traversing stopped. All right, carry on. He ignored the questioning look in Hogg's eyes, and after a moment the youngster went back to his cheese and biscuits. He was pleased with the speed of Hogg's reaction, He'd got the gun traversing smoothly like an old timer. By God, it might be possible to get these green kids sharp enough for the invasion yet, so that at least they'd stay alive through the first two or three actions. If they could do that, they stood a good chance. But this was the middle of May, and he knew there wasn't much time left. Isn't that brew ready yet? he asked testily. 
Taffy passed his mug up to him. Here you are, Paddy, he said. Taffy was one of the old hands from the desert days, the only one in his crew, and the only one allowed to call him Paddy. The other three were still too inexperienced to understand all that was implied by the old soldier's phrase, on parade, on parade, off parade, off parade. And Donovan didn't believe in rushing these things. What about some burgoo, said Taffy. Donovan gulped some of the hot sweet liquid, warming his hands on the metal mug. All right, he said. Have a go at it if you like, but be ready to pack it up in a hurry if we have to move. Taffy set about instructing the others in the niceties of making burgoo, which consisted of a mass of army biscuits dissolved in tinned milk, slowly heated in a mess tin with treacle or plain sugar. Donovan scanned the country around him slowly and carefully with his field glasses, purely from habit. He knew that the hussars, who had been the enemy on the day's scheme, were down on the Farnborough Road out of sight waiting for the umpire's decision. As automatically as a sailor notices the wind and the weather, he picked out likely anti-tank gun positions and his best approach to the far ridge. The crew were arguing about the value of the French as allies. You're bloody daft, mate, that's what you are. Off your rocker, said Geordie, the co-driver. He sat below next to Taffy and could only make his point to the others in the turret by twisting round and gesticulating from under their boots. If they were so brave, he said, why did they pack up so quickly in 1940 then? Brooke, the wireless operator, started to reply. They were betrayed by their leaders, Geordie jeered. Betrayed by my Aunt Fanny, he said. They was windy. That's what they was, windy. They seen a few jerry tanks and they said, ooh la la, we've had it. And they scarpered off home. Now wait a minute, Brooke protested. What about the holding action they fought so we could get away at Dunkirk? What holding action? I never heard of no French fighting at Dunkirk. Well that, I suggest, is because you haven't read the authoritative reports, said Brooke, crushingly. Brooke, as a very new Lance Corporal, was going to have to drop that superior tone, Donovan decided. That sort of tone was always resented. But all in all, Donovan was not dissatisfied with any of his own tank crew, nor with any of the others in his troop of four tanks. Most of the men were untried, but they were keen, and there was a good leavening of experienced men like Taffy. Lieutenant Grimshaw, the troop officer, was a good steady officer who would do more than his share and look after his men. He wasn't after medals or promotion and he and Sergeant Donovan understood each other. Don't blind us with science, Brookie boy, Geordie was cheering. Put all them big words back. There was rather more annoyance in Geordie's voice than the argument warranted, and Donovan suspected it had something to do with Brook's recent promotion to acting unpaid Lance Corporal. Donovan knew well that every soldier secretly hoped to find his own name in each new list of promotions. Geordie had done his basic training in the infantry, but had not been up to the required physical fitness. He had been sent to one of the new special training battalions for building up and then to the tank corps. So he had had longer in the army than the other new lads. The wireless, which had been spluttering quietly in the background, cut into the talk with a call to all tanks. Donovan replied with a conventional phrase that acknowledged both that he was listening and that he could hear clearly. The next tank to reply should have been Smudger Smith, his troop corporal, but Smudger didn't reply. And after a pause, the rest of the tanks carried on. Donovan hoisted himself up and looked over towards the troop corporal's tank. Smudger was sprinting towards it, holding something in his hand. Eggs, perhaps. Scrounging in England, within a couple of miles of Aldershot barracks. It was typical of Smudger. There were more delays from other unwary tank commanders, and when the manger came up on the air again, he was fuming. Hello, all stations, George Abel Baker. That was Christ bloody awful. Now get your fingers out and keep on your toes. I want you all, repeat all, reported in 90 seconds next time. Now, 
orders. There will be a tank commander's conference at RHQ in figures 10. The jeeps will be round to collect you all, so leave your boys where they are. All stations, George Abel Baker, over. This time, they were all waiting for it, and the replies snapped back. One minute and 50 seconds, that's better. Wireless silence from now, all stations, George Abel Baker, out. The jeep from HQ arrived in a few minutes. It picked up the other three tank commanders, and then came for Donovan. You're in command of the troop, Corporal Brook, said Lieutenant Grimshaw. Yes, sir, Lance Corporal Brook replied smartly. He remembered he ought to salute, but the jeep was gone while he hesitated. He had been acting unpaid Lance Corporal for only a week, and except for a fatigue detail and twice on the barrack square, he had never commanded anybody. His former close friends had not yet been able to make up their minds whether he was going to be an easygoing NCO who would try not to allow the promotion to make any difference, or would move over to their side and so put an end to his old relationships. Brooke was hardly conscious of the need to make such a choice. He thought his old, easy relations would continue, that he would be obeyed because he was liked. How about the BBC, Brookie? If there's wireless silence, no one will call us up, Hogg suggested. We're probably all right for the next 15 minutes or so, said Brooke. He switched the A set to the BBC frequency and they all settled back to listen to a forces record programme. Brooke moved across the turret and climbed up to the commander's place and sat there unconsciously imitating Donovan. God, how lucky he was to be in this tank, he told himself again. He had nearly burst with pride when Major Tommy Johnson had sent for him after Eagle Scheme and told him he was pleased with his showing and was making him wireless operator to the legendary Sergeant Donovan with the double MM. Brooke had written a long letter to his parents about it. His father had said it was a jolly good show and Brooke hoped it made up a little bit for their disappointment when his application for a commission had been turned down. His father had been commissioned immediately in the First World War, but Brooke felt that things must have been different then. He knew the invasion would come in a few weeks now, and he wished he could discover some clues to his ability to stand up to it. Whether I am a coward, he said to himself, using the actual word deliberately. Up until now, there had been few opportunities for him to find out. He remembered the fight during his last year at school and how his fear had left him after the first punch on the nose and how he had felt ill when it was all over. He wondered what would happen if he panicked completely. He couldn't get out of the tank without pushing Donovan out of the way and that somehow didn't seem feasible. For a moment he pictured himself lying on the floor of the turret in sheer terror, unable to move, jamming the traverse, screaming. He pushed the scene away from him quickly. He pulled the earphones off his head I'm just going for a Jimmy Riddle. Take over, will you, Hog? He dropped off the tank and walked towards a clump of young silver birch. Hog watched him go. The Lance Jack tape had gone to his head, Hog thought bitterly. If he was so damned clever, why wasn't he an officer? Hog was pretty sure that if it hadn't been for Brooke with his accent and his public school, he himself would have been promoted. He even let his girl think he was going to be on his last leave. Well, roll on the invasion. Perhaps Brooke would get killed and he, Hog, would get promoted. There was no limit to what could happen in action. He watched Brooke sit down under the trees. Dozy, that's what he was. Hogg picked up Donovan's field glasses and scanned the hills, imagining himself coolly knocking out one German tank after another. Vera Lynn was singing on the wireless, and they all joined in, unmelodiously. The late afternoon sun warmed the tank, and Geordie opened his hatch and climbed out to sit with his back to the turret. He scratched the scar on his forehead where the army doctors had cut his bump out. Funny now to think of how he hadn't wanted to let them do it. 
The medical officer had told him that it wouldn't hurt, but it hadn't been the thought of the pain that had made him refuse, for he had been beaten often enough by his mother's blokes in his time. He had known he could never tell the M.O. what his grandmother had told him about the bump. He knew it was balmy, of course. She'd said that all his brains were in it, and if he ever lost it, he'd go loopy. And he couldn't explain that to the M.O. or to anyone, because he knew it couldn't be so. But just the same, there was always the possibility that it was true. In the end, the M.O. had bullied him into consenting to the operation, and he had gone down to the hospital in Aldershot in a state of terror. It had got progressively worse, until at the end, he had fought like a wildcat against the anaesthetic. When he came round, his hand went up to his forehead and felt a flat bandage in place of the egg-sized growth he had had for so many years. Even when they took the bandage off, and he saw how much better he looked, he hadn't lost his resentment completely. He thought of the tremendous changes the army had made in him. He had been called up to serve in the infantry, and on his first day he had sat on his palliasses in the barrack room with the pile of clothes given him at the quartermaster stores and waited while all the other recruits changed from their civvies into uniform. He tried to remember the name of the bloke in the bunk next to him who had disappeared in the first few weeks to become an officer. Well, it didn't matter, but if it had been one of the others, he would probably have gone ahead and changed. But just as he was screwing up his courage, this chap had stood up in his posh underwear and held up the long woollen underpants they had been issued with and caught Geordie's eye. My God, he had said, they don't expect us to wear this, do they? It's positively shaggy. I'm not going to put it on. I shall tell them that I just can't wear wool next to the skin. It makes me scratch all day. He had smiled in what was obviously a friendly overture, but Geordie had known then that it was impossible to strip in front of him. He had sat there with a slow, dumb defiance, feeling a dread of what they would do to him for refusing to obey almost the first order. The Lance Corporal had asked him what the hell he was doing and told him to get a move on, and when he had continued to sit without replying, had sent for the platoon sergeant. When Geordie had refused to answer him too, the sergeant had told him very quietly to pick up his kit and follow him. He had done so, convinced that he was going to be put in the guardroom. But the sergeant had taken him to his own small room and shut the door. Now, lad, what's up with he? The sergeant had said firmly but kindly. The familiar accent and the obvious fact that the sergeant was someone he could recognise had succeeded. Without a word, he had dropped his trousers and shown the sergeant the rags and newspapers tied around his legs. I didn't want them toffs to see, he had said. No toffs in army, lad, the sergeant had said. Only soldiers, good uns and bad uns. You're not the first poor lad that's come, you know, not by a long chalk. I didn't have too much money myself when I joined seven year ago. Times was bad then and I was lucky to get in. You'll say same thing when you get used to it. You can make up parcel of your civvies and change in here and we'll post them home. Now, hurry up. The sergeant had walked out, leaving him there. Geordie had cut away the swaddling which had served to keep him warm while sleeping in the passage where his granny had a tiny room in Newcastle. Then he had pulled on the warm, unbelievably soft woolen underwear. None of the lads had said anything to him when he walked back to the barrack room in uniform. The toff in the next bunk had been all right too when he got to know him better. He'd given him picture magazines to look at and once had taken a photograph of him dressed for his first guard. Geordie had posted it to his girl. And it was the Toff who had talked to him about his bump. It was funny, but he hadn't minded at all when the Toff talked to him about it, although he had always been ready to fight before. The Toff told him that taking it off was a simple matter and pointed out that it wouldn't cost him anything in the army. You'll probably have a Harley Street specialist or two do it for you, old boy, he had said. Geordie had thought it over for a few days and had then asked the sergeant about it. But a CMO, lad, that's what he's there for. If he says have it off, you do it. 
The MO hadn't asked him about it at all, but sent him to the hospital. After it was all over and he was ready for discharge, the hospital doctor had told him that he was undernourished and underweight and probably couldn't stand up to the hard life in the infantry, and they were sending him to be built up. Geordie had thought it was nonsense, but it sounded like a holiday. In three months, the food and exercise in the special battalion had put two stone on him. The PT instructors taught him unarmed combat, and when he went home for his first leave, he felt like the bloke in the muscle-building advertisements, who surprises everyone who used to push him around. He had gone to his granny, who, as much as anyone, had brought him up. He had given her a couple of quid, which made him feel good. His granny had told him that his mother had moved in with a chap that worked on the docks sometimes, and he had gone to see her. She was still in her dressing gown, although it was three o'clock in the afternoon. She was not quite drunk, not as drunk as he had seen her, that is. They had quarrelled fiercely before he had left to join the army, but she seemed to have forgotten that, and greeted him boisterously, and told him that he was looking wonderful. She'd given him a Guinness, and then her bloke had come in. It's my son, she'd said quickly. Oh, is it? said a big, unpleasant-looking man, and he had glared at Geordie. Hop it, he had said briefly. His mother told him nervously that he'd better go, and he'd left. Most of his daydreams since revolved about a scene in which he rescued his mother from drink and the docker, knocking him arse over tip like they did in the pictures. His girl, Lillian, had been very impressed with the changes in him and obviously eager to hang on to him. With his pocket full of money for the first time in his life and the self-confidence of his uniform, she had been easy. She struggled and scratched him and pulled his hair, but she couldn't stop him, and as soon as it was too late to matter any more, she stopped trying and put her arms round his neck. Afterwards, she had clung to him, crying bitterly while he tried to comfort her. He swore that he would marry her, and he had meant it at that time. Now, he wasn't so sure. He'd sort of been promoted when they'd put him in the tanks instead of the infantry. He wasn't the same poor sod he'd been when he'd joined, he told himself not knowing nothing and scared to talk to a girl what worked in a shop and maybe didn't have to work at all. He'd been about a bit now. There was a girl in Farnborough whose dad worked in an office in London. She'd been pleased enough to go to the pictures with him and she hadn't said no to a bit of kissing and a feel or two either. After all, Lillian was ignorant and uneducated and she wasn't improving herself like what he was. If he came through this lot all right and he felt pretty sure that he would, then he'd wait a bit before making up his mind about marriage. Perhaps he'd travel a bit. Australia or even the States. Why not? Other blokes had done it, and what they could do, he could do. He saw himself in New York driving a big car, with some sort of well-paid job. Or California. Hollywood. Adventure has its own style. It's made of tall trees, unpaved trails, and at the center, the most capable Subaru Forester yet. The 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. It comes with 9.2 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and advanced dual-function X-Mode. Discover adventure on a deeper level. The 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness. To explore all you can do with the rugged Subaru Wilderness family of vehicles, visit Subaru.com wilderness. This is your invitation to plug into a lineup of Lexus electrified vehicles built at the intersection of performance and design with a range of options to fit any lifestyle. A feeling this electric is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the elevation of electrification and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Inventory may vary by dealer.
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no. The perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. A shout from Sandy, the troop officer's wireless operator, warned the other tanks that they were being called. Hogg shouted for Brooke and then jumped into the turret and flicked over to the regimental frequency. Sugar Abel Baker over. The Major's operator had obviously asked for a reception report before he passed any message in order to give them all an opportunity to get on frequency. Brooke clambered up on the turret in time to answer and when all tanks were netted in, the order came. Bring all your boys down here. Over. Wilco, out. Brooke felt tremendously excited at the prospect of leading four tanks down the road and over to the rest of the regiment. OK, pack up, lads, he said. Unconsciously, he was imitating Sergeant Donovan's voice, and the others grinned. We've got to go down and join the rest. Get everything cleared up and put away, and let's get weaving. Geordie, get the mess tins and primers cleaned up. It's not my turn, said Geordie sourly. Whose turn is it, then? As soon as he had said it, Brooke realised that that was a mistake. Yours, said Geordie. Hogg giggled. Well, do it anyway. Brooke tried to make his voice sound stern. Be set for control, he shouted to the other tanks, and the wireless operators nodded to show that they understood. He switched over to the special B-set, which had a range of only a thousand yards, and was used for a few tanks in close contact with each other. Geordie was sitting undisturbed in his co-driver's seat, and Brooke saw he wasn't going to obey the order. Geordie. Geordie looked up at him. Get out and get those things, do you hear? I got a name for Lance Chucks to call me by, Geordie said. My friends call me Geordie. Here, I'll get the beggars, said Taffy in disgust. He started to climb out of the driver's seat. Brooke stopped him. No, you won't. Get back in the tank. Taffy looked at him for a moment, then got back. All right, Brunch. I'm giving you an order. Get out of the tank. Troop a brunch, Geordie muttered. But he got out of the tank. March round to the back of the tank and pick up the mess tins and the primers. Geordie slouched round and picked them up. Scrape out the mess tin with a spoon. Geordie stroked the caked biscuit mess once or twice. Stow them on the back and get back into your seat. Geordie pushed the two things under the tank sheet and got back into his seat with a triumphant leer at Taffy and Hogg. I'm putting you on a charge, Brooke said. Advance, Taffy. I did it, didn't I? Geordie grumbled. You can't put me on a fizzer. In a few minutes, they came up to the rest of the tanks. The sergeant major waved them to the back of the queue and came over to them. Smart bit of work, that, said the sergeant major approvingly to Brooke. 
As this was almost the first normal sentence the Sergeant Major had ever addressed to him, Brooke was rather at a loss. Thanks, Sergeant Major, he said, but it wasn't far. Wasn't far? Sergeant Major seemed puzzled. I mean your troop catching the hussars with their slacks down this afternoon. The umpires gave us six tanks destroyed. He looked closely at Brooke. What did you think I meant? Unable to pass off the situation, Brooke said miserably, oh, I thought you meant my getting the tanks down here. Oh, Sergeant Major put his hand up to his mouth. Oh yes, that was pretty smart too, he said, and earned Brooke's devotion. He turned to go. Sergeant Major, said Brooke, just a minute, sir. Yes? I want to put brunch on a charge, sir. All right, come and see me about it when we get back tonight. He walked away. No one in the tank spoke. Brooke felt he had suddenly lost their sympathy. He sat on top of the turret, determined to make no concessions to them and feeling very much alone. Soon the tank commanders came back. Well, we won that battle anyway, said Donovan Riley. I wish they were all like that. Back to barracks, Taffy. Taffy had started up and swung out into the road without waiting for orders. Hogg had elevated the gun to the proper travelling position and Brooke was checking the wireless. They were good lads, Donovan told himself again. And in some ways it wasn't a bad thing that they were so inexperienced. If he'd had a whole crew of veterans, they'd have indulged in time-honoured pessimistic forecasts about the coming invasion. And he knew that in his present state, he couldn't take much of that. As it was, there was an unspoken understanding between him and Taffy to let them keep some of their illusions of invulnerability for a while. The youngsters had absolute faith in Sergeant Donovan because of his two military medals. They were not to know that when you get the second MM, you were nearly always past your best, on the slope that led to the condition called Bomb Happy. Donovan had often been frightened, as had very nearly everyone he'd known, certainly all the best ones. At first his control had been exceptionally good, and he'd never brought the fear back with him when they pulled out. He'd probably earned his first MM, as much as most earned them. He'd certainly been very pleased to get it, and for a little while had had dreams of a VC, but that had soon worn off. After three years of tank warfare, he was still a first-rate tank commander, but it had become the automatic response of his training and experience. He found that now he was thinking more and more of staying alive, with the growing conviction that he wasn't going to. He was no longer able to leave his fear up at the sharp end, but took it back with him to keep him awake in his tent at night. In North Africa, Rommel's surrender had come none too soon for him. He knew he wouldn't have lasted much longer. They'd made him a troop sergeant, and while the regiment was waiting for orders outside Tunis, the other MM had come along. He had been surprised, but it wasn't the first time a decoration had been given for no specific cause, and no one seemed to begrudge him it. He had allowed himself to boast a little to his wife when he wrote to her about it. He had felt ashamed, and told her the truth in a second letter, that he didn't know why he had got it, and a number of the lads deserved it at least as much. But of course, she had believed his first letter, and had thought the second one was only his trying to be modest. Oh well, if it made her happy to think he was a hero, it didn't do any harm. Then, to his relief, the regiment had been ordered home. They had thought it was a reward for their desert record and their casualties, but soon discovered it was for the invasion. In England, a lot of the battle-experienced tank crews were sent to untried regiments to stiffen them and had been replaced by youngsters from the training battalions like Brooke and Hogg and Geordie. It amused Donovan to realise that Brooke and Hogg and Geordie had been only 13 or 14 years old when it all began, still in school, when it had looked as though the Aitais were going to get right through to Cairo. The youngsters lapped up everything they were told. They took his and the other senior NCO's word as gospel. 
They were eager to believe that everything they had been forced to learn at the training battalion was nonsense, and in this they had been indulged a bit, out of the fighting soldiers' contempt for the non-combatant instructors. It was true that along with their valuable training, they had been told some arrant nonsense out of the book. They had been taught that tanks went into battle with hatches closed down and the commander peering through the periscope as though he were in a submarine. They had thought that crews wore their steel helmets inside the turret and that tanks exchanged shots like boxing blows. They had thought that the Bren gun on the turret was for shooting down dive bombers and they'd even been told how to do it. They had been taught tank warfare on the assumption that a 30-ton tank could creep up unseen to the enemy. All these things they unlearned gladly. Now they knew that a tank with hatches closed was like a blind monster at the mercy of a fast, sharp-eyed enemy, and that dangerous as it was for the commander to keep his head out, it was not so dangerous as shutting himself in. They realised that if anything pierced their armour, their steel helmets would not be of much use to them, that when a tank was hit by an armour-piercing shell, those who were still alive and able to move got out fast before the next one hit it. The whole thing was as unlike a boxing match as it could be, because in a tank battle, the first hit was the winning one. They learned with dismay that the dive bombers shot down by tanks could be counted on the fingers of one hand. After a few weeks, they had lost a lot of their over-optimism, but had gained in its place a tremendous confidence in their experienced tank commanders. When they got back to barracks, Brooke went immediately to find the sergeant major. Oh yes, Corporal Brooke. Now, what happened with brunch? Brooke told him. The sergeant major rubbed his chin. You did quite right, he said. Every junior NCO has to make a stand sooner or later. But the good ones don't have to do it more than once or twice. In other words, you shouldn't get obeyed just because they're afraid you'll put them on a charge. Now, Brunch is a difficult man, but basically he's all right. How would it be if I was to have a talk with him and we were to forget about the charge this time? Brooke was tempted to accept the Sergeant Major's officer, but he felt it was the easy way out. And besides, Geordie's not being charged might be misinterpreted by the others. If you don't mind, sir, I think I ought to go through with it. The sergeant major looked surprised and was evidently not pleased. He'll be on squadron leader's orders in the morning then. Charge him under section 40. As Brooke came into the barrack room, the horseplay stopped. Brunch? Corporal, shouted Geordie in parade ground style, coming to attention with a crash of his boots. You'll be on squadron leader's orders in the morning. No one spoke. You'd better get your kit, Blancoed. He turned and walked out. As soon as the door shut behind him, he heard the buzz of talk break out. I've done more junkers than he's got service, he heard Geordie say clearly and the others laugh. Later that evening, he went to the pub where one troop usually met. Seven or eight of them were there and he greeted them as a body. No one replied to him. He bought his pint of beer and went over to the dartboard where Hogg and Sandy, the troop officer's operator, were playing. He picked up the chalk and stood by the score slate. I'll take chalks, he said. It's the customary way of getting into the next game. We can't have an NCO working for us, Hogg said. It's against regulations. Brooke put the chalk down and walked over to the bar. You want a game, said a voice beside him. It was Nobby Clark, Corporal Smith's driver and one of the old desert rats. Yes, Nobby. Right, we'll play after them then. What are you drinking, mild and bitter? When Nobby had beaten him at three games of darts, they walked back to the barracks together. I had a tape once myself. Nobby said casually. But I didn't keep it long. What happened? Old Smudge and me got copped, trying to flog an Itai staff car in Cairo. Smudge got busted down to Trooper, and I got 28 days over the wall. He's quite a lad, isn't he? Old Smudger? He's the greatest shite hawk that ever lived. 
He always gets his tapes back. He's too good a tank commander. I suppose they thought my tape was a mistake anyway. As they parted at the bottom of the barrack stairs, Nobby punched him gently. Don't let him get you down, brookie boy. The next morning, Sergeant Donovan put his head in the barrack room while they were waiting to go on parade. Come out here a minute, will you, Brooke? He said pleasantly. Brooke walked out and significant looks were exchanged in the barrack room. The two of them walked down to the end of the corridor where they could not be overheard. Sergeant Major tells me that you put brunch on a charge. Yes, he acted up a bit when you left yesterday, refused to obey an order and generally tried to make me look foolish. I see. Why didn't you tell me about it? Suddenly, Brooke realised that he had been guilty of a gross breach of army etiquette in not telling the troop sergeant that he had put one of the troop on a charge. He felt himself blushing deeply. I'm awfully sorry, Sergeant. I can't think how it happened. I, I just forgot. Forgot? Donovan looked at him keenly. You don't forget things like that. I'm the troop sergeant. How do you think it feels to find out that one of my men is up on a charge and I don't even know about it? The Colonel himself would have made sure I knew about it. Brooke felt too miserable to reply. Donovan waited for a few moments. Then he said more kindly, We'll forget about it this time, Brooke. Next time, use your head. Now make sure you're looking smart when you go in front of the Major. He doesn't like frivolous charges. That's all. Brooke walked round to the squadron office at 9.45. Geordie was already there, looking very much the old soldier in his best battle dress with razor-sharp creases and his boots a dazzling black that Brooke had never been able to achieve. The Sergeant Major came up almost immediately and spoke to Geordie. Geordie snapped smartly to attention. The Sergeant Major examined Geordie meticulously and was evidently satisfied. He got the two clerks out of the office to act as escorts and stood the three of them in a row. He called them to attention once or twice and then told them to stand easy. He walked away and indicated that Brooke was to come up to him. Brooke marched quickly over and stood to attention. Stand easy, Corporal. Brooke knew that he too was being inspected, though not as obviously as Geordie had been. You fall in on the left and follow my orders. When I say halt, right turn, I want you about an arm's length from the escort so that you'll be standing half left from the other squadron leader. Have you got that? Yes, sir. Right. Go and fall in with the others then. The four of them stood together in silence. After a few moments, the sergeant major came out of the office. Attention! Left turn! Quick march! Right wheel! Hat off! He whipped off Geordie's beret as they marched quickly into the office. Mark time! The four soldiers marked time in front of the squadron leader's desk, raising their knees grotesquely high. Halt! Right turn! They were now in a row, facing the desk, with Geordie directly opposite the squadron leader and Brooke at one side. 78351245, Trooper Brunch, said the squadron leader in a quiet voice. Sir, you are charged that whilst on active service you did behave in a manner prejudicial to the maintenance of good order and discipline, in that you did, one, refuse to obey an order given to you by a superior officer until it had been repeated three times, and two, you replied in an impertinent and disrespectful manner. Do you plead guilty or not guilty? Guilty, sir. Tell me what happened, Corporal Brooke. Sir! On the 14th of the 5th, 1944, at about 6.15pm, I ordered the accused, Trooper Brunch, to get out of the tank and pick up the mess tin and primer stove. He replied that it was not his turn. I ordered him to do it anyway, and he still did not obey. I then ordered him the third time, and this time he obeyed. Brooke had memorised the words, but he was glad to get them out without stumbling. What have you got to say, Brunch? Nothing, sir. Why did you refuse to obey an order? I thought it was the corporal's turn to put the stuff away, sir. What do you mean, the corporal's turn? 
If you're ordered to do something, you do it. Just because the corporal or the tank commander or your troop officer sometimes choose to do certain tasks themselves doesn't mean that you have a right to demand that they do it. How long have you been in the army? Eighteen months, sir. Well, you're not a recruit any longer, and you know better than that, don't you? Yes, sir. What about the second part of the charge, Corporal Brook? For a moment, Brooke's mind went completely blank as he struggled to remember the second part of the charge. He must have looked panic-stricken, for the squadron leader repeated it. Brooke tried to remember what Geordie had said that seemed impertinent and disrespectful, but he could remember nothing. Well, Corporal? The squadron leader sounded annoyed. What did he say? I don't remember, sir. You don't remember? There was silence in the room for some seconds. Do you want to withdraw that part of the charge, then? I think I'd better, sir. All right. Now, you, Brunch, you have admitted to refusing to obey an order, which is one of the most serious crimes you can be charged with, and one that can get you a court-martial. I don't care what you think about the order, nor who gives it to you. You will obey it, immediately, without argument and without lip. If, after you have obeyed it, you have any complaint, you know what the proper channels are for making it. As you did obey the order in the end, and because I haven't had any trouble with you before, I will this time take a lenient view. But if I ever get you up before me again on this sort of charge, I'll see that you find out just how unpleasant a place the army can be. Reprimanded. March him out, Sergeant Major. Corporal Brooke to remain here. Brooke remained standing at attention while the Sergeant Major roared out the commands that took them outside. He heard, Hat on! Dismiss! And the Sergeant Major came back. Stand at ease, Corporal, said the squadron leader. Now, you got exceptionally high marks on your card, of course, and I had hopes that you might prove to be one of my more responsible NCOs in time. But this demonstration has made me wonder if I'm wrong. In this squadron, putting a man on a charge is a serious thing, and I do not expect my NCOs, even the most junior, to use it to lend weight to their authority, except in the most necessary circumstances. I expect you to handle men, so that it is almost never necessary to put them on a charge. Do you understand? Yes, sir. All right, you may go. Brooke marched out into the air and drew a deep breath. He tried to think where he had gone wrong, but it seemed that what had happened had proceeded inevitably from the circumstances. He realised that he had expected obedience founded on something personal, and that the essence of the system was that it must be impersonal. He knew now that he had to choose, either to keep his rank or to be one of the boys. But then he knew that for him there was no choice. It was going to be mean that his life in the army would be much lonelier, but there could be no question of his refusing to accept responsibility.